Well, good morning, church. It's a, a joy and an honor to be with you today. We're going to continue your series in Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, picking up in verse 11. Zach, thanks so much for the introduction. You know you're among friends when they steal your jokes, so that is a, a gift. I, I can tell you that um, I, the simplest way to describe the relationship that um, Bethy and I have with Katrina and Zach is that this friendship is is pretty incredible because we would get together for Christmas. If you know Katrina, you kind of know something about Bethany. They are sort of free spirits, fun all the time, going 100 miles an hour. So they would be out in the yard throwing snowballs, making snowmen, and Zach and I would be falling asleep on two different couches next to each other with some theology book open. And that was the definition of a good friendship. So that, I appreciate that a lot. You've, uh, many of you here have been very dear to us. I have such an affection for this church and been able to interact in many different ways uh, over the years. And uh, if, we're, if you're new here or you don't know me, I'm, I'm just um, really excited to be able to open God's word uh, to you today. You have a great staff, a great team, uh, especially uh, Pastor Gary has been a friend all the way back into his student ministry days. We've done many different things together. And I just want to tell you that you have a pastor, you know this, a man, man of the word, a man who is a effective teacher and preacher of the word, a really incredible leader. But what sticks out to me about Gary is his shepherd's heart and his love for Jesus. And I'm so thankful for, for your example in my life. So I'm a born and raised New Englander, right? All right. How many of you here were born and raised in New England? That's right. That's good. And well, the rest of you, welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here as well. So I, I was born and raised in North Central Massachusetts in a very, very small town um, and grew up in a small church. And the way that you know in New England that you are from a small town um, is pretty simple. I, I grew up in a town that was so small that when I was a kid, we did not have a single Dunkin' Donuts. We didn't have one Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> There are Dunkin' Donuts there now. Uh, they have, uh, they've grown. Um, but um, the church I grew up in, 60 people, mom and dad, my parents were the kind of volunteers that every single pastor dreams about, right? They were invested volunteers, loved Jesus. They served in Sunday school, served in Awana. My dad was an elder for a season. When the pastor went on vacation, my dad would preach. We weren't just at the church when the doors were open. We opened the doors to the church. We shoveled the sidewalks. We cleaned the church on Saturday. That was our family. And what I love about small churches and, and what God's doing here is incredible. So God uses all different kinds of churches to reach all different kinds of people as long as they're centered on who Jesus is, which is actually what we're going to talk about today. But the beauty for me of growing up in a small town church in a church of 60 people is I made a profession of faith as a young man, got baptized, I was around 10 years old. And they pulled me aside and they said, Andy, you've been coming here for a while. You need to start carrying your weight around here, all right? And you need a job. And so my first ministry started at 10 years old. I was the director of overhead transparencies, all right? That was my first ministry. <laughs> Tells you a little bit about how old I am. Uh, if you're not familiar with this, there was a thing called the overhead projector, all right? And so there was the hymnal, which happened for a long time. And then now we have these LED things and there's projectors, but there's a little dark ages in between the two where there was this contraption called an overhead projector. And uh, it was an interesting time, but that was my first job in ministry. And in some ways I've never looked back. And the thing that I love about it is my parents taught me from an early age that church was not just a place to go, but it was a people to belong to and a mission, the mission of God that we get grafted into. And I carry that to this day, understanding that it is such a joy and a privilege to be on mission for God, especially in the Northeast, especially in New England. People say it's hard. I, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but I grew up hearing that we're the frozen chosen. Have you ever heard that before, right? 
And, you know, it's kind of a funny thing because there are, there are many people here that are far from God who don't know who Jesus is. And, and that breaks God's heart and it should break our heart. But friends, I just want to encourage you today that we have everything that we need in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the spirit of the living God and your friends and neighbors and your coworkers who may be adamantly against God today, God may be pursuing them and using you and your story to do it. There are 60 towns, I live in New Hampshire now, there are 60 towns in New Hampshire without a, a gospel preaching church. Some people see that as, as a devastating fact. I see that as opportunity. We have an opportunity together. And I love that uh, currently I get to serve with a network of churches in the six New England states and in Eastern New York. There are Christians in New York, I found out. Um, <laughs> and uh, we serve 117 independent churches. They're autonomous churches on mission for Jesus. And we come together and we stack hands together and we say, how can we effectively advance the gospel in our region? How can we make sure that our churches and our leaders are healthy? How can we start new churches? And uh, I love the opportunity that I get to do that. It's really a dream job for me. And I come to you today really as extended family. And speaking of family, looking at our text today in Galatians, just a real quick recap. Galatians is a letter that Paul wrote to dig into some family business. It's already been noted in this series, but I want to mention three things that make this letter unique among the different books that we have in the Bible. First of all, Galatians was likely first, the first letter that Paul wrote that we have contained in Scripture. So that's kind of a unique thing. It's the first letter that he wrote. It was also written to a family of churches. Many of the epistles were written to a specific person or to a specific unique community of faith. This letter was written, uh, sent to a family of churches in Galatia. The third thing is that it is, and you've already seen this, but it is distinctly direct and corrective, all right? Paul does not mince words in his letter to the Galatians, right? That is such an important thing, and we're going to look at that. And he's concerned with the fidelity to the true gospel. Every church family, every human family has expectations. Your family has expectations. You have rules. Some of them are written, some of them maybe not written. Families have a culture and a way of being. We have a family history full of stories, full of joy, full of hardship that shape how we view the world and how we function day to day. And if your story includes marriage, then you know this especially to be true. Like one of the functions when you come to the pastors for premarital counseling is to try to align the misaligned expectations that families don't operate all the same way. Where do we do around the holidays? Who does what in the house? Which direction does the toilet paper hang, right? Those kind of things. Like I have learned in marriage, I've been married 20 years, so I'll share one piece of wisdom. I buy a specific type of toothpaste tube just to eliminate conflict in my marriage, right? Because it's, it's one that you can't mess up the way that Bethany does it, which is the wrong way, all right? <laughs> but I want you to consider today three words that we're actually gonna look at through the lens of this text. And I want you to think about how your family history, I know my family history shapes how I look at these things. Here are the three words, failure, conflict, and justice. Failure, how do you look at failure? How do you look at conflict? How do you deal with conflict? Maybe you don't deal with conflict. And how do you deal with justice? Human justice, justice before God. We're gonna look at those things together today. They're central to what we're gonna talk about 
Paul addresses these things through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is writing to a, a family, a new church family, that is grappling with the realities of the gospel. The gospel has come and it has swung wide, open the door of salvation to all who would believe, everyone who would believe. The beauty of this gospel is being lived out and worked out in the messy realities of a diverse mix of people, especially as we'll see today, historic Jews and the Gentiles, those who did not grow up in the Jewish tradition. Hopefully today we'll see what would happen if we were to embrace Paul's example of addressing failure, embracing healthy conflict, and understanding the realities and implications of the gospel that says we are justified by faith alone. Would you pray with me this morning? God, thank you for the gift of your word. It is life. God, I pray that what strikes our hearts today, what changes the way that we live tomorrow, would be nothing that I say, but everything that you say. I pray that your spirit, which is living and active, your word, which we have the powerful force, this sword, God, would cut to the very heart. We thank you for this time together. You are good. It's in the great and matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. The first thing we're going to consider as we look at this passage, picking up Galatians 2.11, is Peter's failure. Peter's failure. Depending on your translation, it may say Cephas. I'm using the ESV translation, other translations. Those are two names for the same person. Cephas and Peter are the same person. Let's pick up in Galatians 2 verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him. That's Paul. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Before we zoom in on this, I want to zoom out just a little bit on Peter's life and story. Because to understand Peter's failure, we actually first need to understand a breakthrough, Peter's breakthrough that happened and it's recorded in the book of Acts. So you don't need to turn there right there. I just want to kind of give you a summary. First of all, who is Peter? Peter's an apostle. Peter went to Jesus University, right? He had a front row seat as a disciple and follower of Jesus. He walked with the incarnate Jesus. And not only was he a disciple of Jesus, scripture tells us that he was an inner circle follower of Jesus. Often you will see Jesus go away and he pulls away who? James, John, and Peter. We see this over and over again. Peter is the one that Jesus looks at in Matthew 16, and he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Peter is the one who in Matthew 17 is invited up on the mountaintop to the moment of transfiguration, gets to see a glimpse of God transfigured. And he's the same one at the end of the story in John 21, in a moment of restoration, that Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, feed my Sheep. Peter preached on the back end of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost. Peter preaches and thousands of people become Christians, followers of Jesus. They are baptized. And all of that being true, Peter is slow to be able to come around to this idea that the gospel is for all people. It's the message, especially in the gospel of Luke, and then Luke being the author of Acts, it is a core theme of those two books, that the gospel is for all people, not just for the Jews, but for everyone, the Gentiles included, those who did not grow up in the Jewish 
tradition. And we see in, in Acts chapter 10 that Peter does have a breakthrough. It's a spiritual awakening, and it's a combination. He has a vision. He interacts with this Gentile named Cornelius. And ultimately, we see between Acts 10 and 11, a confirmation that the Holy Spirit has come into the life of Gentiles who have given their life over to Jesus. They are authentic Christians. They are followers of the living God. And suddenly, in this transformation, as God often does, he takes the skeptic and turns him into an advocate for the gospel. And Peter becomes a powerful and vital, vital advocate of this idea that the gospel is for everyone who believes. Peter breaks bread with Gentile believers. Doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but in his culture, that was not just countercultural, it was an offense to his a Jewish heritage that he would share a meal. But this is what the gospel does it erases human divides between insiders and outsiders. That is what the gospel does. I can't even overstate how transformational this was in that day. Gentiles and Jews united. This was two families who had little common except for generations of division. This was the chosen people of God and everyone else. This was the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the pagans. Now in the light of Jesus, they're being wed together into a new family and in this new community called the church. This is the Montagues and the Capulets. This is the Hatfields and the McCoys. This is Neo and Agent Smith sitting down for a, for a meal. This is the Red Sox and Yankees fans getting together and breaking bread together. And yes, Gary, even the Mets fans. <laughs> and those rivalries pale in comparison to this transformation by the power of Christ. Gentiles and Jews Class division, racial division, insiders and outsiders, united by the blood of Jesus Christ, a gospel revolution. I love the way that Rosaria Butterfield describes what the gospel does in her great book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She says this, that the gospel turns strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. The gospel turns strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. And that is what we see God doing through the book of Acts and through Paul's writing. And it's even more than that. I would say this, the gospel is turning enemies into family. That is what the gospel is doing. And it's in the light of that breakthrough that, we, that makes Peter's backslide so devastating. It's why Peter takes it so seriously. What Paul is addressing in Galatians here specifically in our text today is that there's a, a, a group of Jews that claimed that if the Gentiles wanted to become Christians, all right, we'll let them on the team. They can come be a part of it. But before they do that, to be real followers of Jesus, they need to become fully Jewish first. They need to eat in our traditions. They need to honor the Sabbath and they need to be circumcised. They need to become Jewish before they can become Christians. And they insisted that the Mosaic law would be followed to the T by Gentile converts to Christianity. And it's easy to, to kind of see this as an abstraction, something that we wouldn't necessarily face today. It's not necessarily the most relatable thing. But for Peter, this was very real. This group, they're known as the Judaizers, was intense. You see, in that day, we have the gift of history and time and all of Scripture. But many people, they saw this Jesus movement in its early days and this movement that we now know as the church. And they thought that the gospel just was, it was just a new branch off of Judaism. Even into the Roman uh, history of the early church, many viewed Christianity was just a new sect 
of the Jewish faith. But that's not what Jesus came to die for or was resurrected for. No, it was a transformation. It was a whole new thing. But for Peter, if he couldn't figure out a way to kind of move all these things together, then his social status wouldn't be as compromised. It says clearly in scripture that he operated out of fear. Peter was a hypocrite and his hypocrisy was contagious. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them. This is verse 13. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. What was Peter's failure? I'll say it this way. Peter's failure was Jesus plus. Jesus plus. That's not like Disney plus, Paramount plus, Jesus plus. No, it's not like that. Right? This, is where, this is not where you find Veggie Tales and the Passion of the Christ and Thief in the Night. And if you know what that is, then I know how old you are. Jesus plus is the heretical temptation of every generation of Christians. And far be it from you and me to think that that's not a temptation or a danger for us today. I spent the uh, month of March, I spent a week with some of our global workers, our missionaries in the West African nation of Togo. And Togo's defining cultural and historical narrative is that Togo was the, is the birthplace of voodoo, all right? I've been to Haiti before. Many Haitians draw their heritage directly back to Togo. And the heritage of voodoo, unfortunately, is also part of that story. As we traveled, we observed hundreds of witch doctors' flags. Every village, every small little neighborhood had a witch doctor. And we saw children whose faces had been intentionally mutilated with tribal stripes to honor a family curse. And we saw actual idols. I have a picture of one that I'll share with you today. And these idols were all over the nation. And they'd actually construct, when there was a new church that would pop up, they would, they would build an idol outside the church to be able to put a curse on it. Fortunately, our God is more powerful. This is a place where the spiritual world, unlike in our Western culture, the spiritual world there, it's right there for you to see. You can just see it. I remember talking to one of the missionaries there who'd been there for five years. And I asked her, I said, what did you, what did you learn in your first year or two as you lived in this culture? She said this, she, I, I love this. She said, I realized that as an American Christian, my view of Satan was very small. And because of that, my view of God only had to be just a little bit bigger. And I came to Togo and I, understood the spiritual world visible and it, it expanded my view of our enemy. But you know what else it did? It blew the doors off my view of who God is. That was a mic drop moment for me. God's doing an incredible thing in Togo. This place that's been gripped by spiritual darkness is now seeing what we call a gospel movement. That's when there's four generations of local believers a Togolese has come to Christ who's led someone to Christ who's led someone to Christ who's led someone to Christ. We consider that a gospel movement. It took many years to see the first churches in Togo as part of the initiative that we're a part of. But now we've gone from one church to three churches in 10 years and from three churches to 30 churches in three years. God is on the move in Togo. I remember we were uh, in one of the churches. Uh, it was actually even more rustic than the photo I have in front of you. It was like sticks and palm branches, right? 
This is a church that's just been planted. And we talked to the pastor and we asked him, how has it been going? And he said, well, we've had 11 baptisms. I'm like, praise God. And we've had two idol burnings. And I'm like, I don't have a category for that. <laughs> I don't know. How are we doing on idol burnings here at GBC? Are we doing good? And as I was talking to these pastors and processing this, and I was thinking about this message that I was going to share, I realized something. They're facing a lot of the same challenges that Paul was calling out. In fact, they shared a story with me. One of their new 30 church plants, growth is explosive, kind of like what's happening in Paul's day. One of their key leaders, a disciple of Jesus, who would say he was a follower of Christ, he had a newborn. And his family, who is not Christian, it's actually a miracle that he's still in some form of fellowship with them because many times they ostracize and kick them out if you become to Christ. But his family said, okay, that's fine. You can do your Jesus thing, but here's what we need to do. We, as a family, for the protection of this baby, believe that we need to make a sacrifice to an idol, an animal sacrifice. And that leader succumbed, just like Peter did, to that pressure to make that sacrifice. And I, I was talking to Josh, who leads the initiative, and I said, you know what? You're facing the Galatian work right now. Jesus plus. That is what is going on in this story. Because friends, when you add anything, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. When you add anything to the gospel, what you get is nothing. When you add the Mosaic law and say it must be maintained and we have to keep these old traditions, the gospel becomes nothing. When you add a voodoo sacrifice to the sacrifice of Jesus, it becomes nothing. And closer to home, when we add our preferences and our even spirit-driven convictions that aren't necessarily central gospel issues, and we say these are the things that you have to do in order to be a Jesus follower, and it's not what Jesus did, but what we do, works-based righteousness, then we lose the plot, and like Peter, we lose the gospel. May God help us to test our hearts and bring conviction wherever this is true, whether it's in overt or in subconscious ways. Amen? This is Peter's failure. And in that failure, we have the gift of seeing Paul's confrontation. Paul's confrontation is the second big idea. Galatians 2, picking up in verse 11, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. And then jumping down to verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, as we consider, I want to think about this confrontation. I want to think about how Peter actually did the confrontation. And to drive this point home, I want to kind of use this little device here today, and I do this with Gary's permission. I want to talk to you about three terrible, no good, very bad ways to confront a Christian leader, all right? Three terrible, no good, very bad ways to confront a Christian leader. And then we're going to contrast that with Paul's righteous way of healing conflict, all right? Some of these may hit close to home for us. I know they did for me. All right, the first terrible, no good way, very good, I'm sorry, terrible, no good, very bad way to confront a Christian leader is this. You have the wrong conversation with the wrong people at the wrong time. You have the wrong conversation with the wrong people at the wrong time. What does Paul do? Just the opposite. Paul has the right conversation with the right people at the right time. He has the right conversation. He's contending for the gospel. He's addressing Peter's hypocrisy. He had the conversation with the right people. He addressed Peter to his face. He was the right person. Zach talked about the authority of God as an apostle that had been given 
through Jesus Christ to Paul, he, had, he was the one to have this conversation. It's always wise, and pretty much in any conflict, but especially thinking about the church, to have the, the question, am I having the right conversation with the right people at the right time? Here at GBC, some of you are elders of the church. You have a spiritual authority and a spiritual burden that you carry, that you have a responsibility to ensure that what is stewarded in terms of scripture, in terms of the word, in terms of the purity of gospel, be it from this pulpit or in the classrooms of this, this church, that those things are true and good and righteous. If you're here today and you're a covenant partner, a member of this church, you've invested you also have a responsibility. It's not this, exactly the same as an elder, but you share in the stewardship of this community because of your partnership. And if, if you're here today and you're visiting, well, welcome, glad you're here. I wanna encourage you to go deeper, to jump in. Some of you maybe been sitting in this church for years and you've never really partnered in and explored what this church believes. And welcome aboard is the class that you need to jump into and explore what those core beliefs and corporate convictions are. The right conversation, the right person, and at the right time. Notice that Peter, it says that he addressed him when he was in Antioch. Yes, this was an urgent issue. This was absolutely critical, but Paul decided to do it when he was face to face. He was intense, but he was also intentional. He did not send an email or a courier pigeon, whatever it was in the day, right? He didn't send that on Sunday night or Monday morning outlining all of his issues. He didn't comment on the live stream, share it on the prayer chain. He didn't make a post on social media. He didn't try to form an alliance. No, one-to-one. -one. That's how Peter led. The second terrible, no good, very bad way to confront a Christian leader is this to be unclear and ambiguous. Don't we all love conflict that's unclear and ambiguous, right? Paul is just the opposite. Paul is clear and Paul is direct. In fact, he can summarize the conflict of the Galatians in a matter of a couple of sentences. He is super clear and super direct. Notice how exact, how thoughtful, how specific Paul is in his confrontation. He is exceptionally precise. He notes the direct offense and the outcome of that offense. And it says that he confronted Peter when he saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Then he used a question, which is always good for driving towards clarity. What's the opposite? Conflict that's flippant, thoughtless, unclear. Conflict that conflates one thing with something else that's driven by only emotion. If we find our place, ourselves in a place where we need to raise a concern or critique of someone, we need to seek clarity. Sometimes we need to take a time out, rest, think, search the scriptures, search our hearts, understand what the core of the issue is, and then have the conversation. Which brings us to our third and final terrible, no good, and very bad way to confront a Christian leader. And that is to confuse a gospel offense for something else. As we have seen, Paul was passionate and intense in his confrontation with Peter. Peter was a public and an influential leader. Paul had the right conversation with the right person at the right time. He was direct and clear, but in that clarity, get this, he was laser focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul courageously defends the gospel. 
Peter was leading people away from the gospel. And Paul was like, nope, this is a central, essential gospel concern. Here's some things that Paul did not do. Paul did not say, hey, Peter, we have a long record of all of your failures. Let's go back through the gospels and let's read them, all right? Remember all the times you messed up, Peter? We have a long record of those. Let's recount the past. Peter didn't say, you know what? I have always, I mean, Paul didn't say this about Peter. Paul did not say, I've always suspected that this would happen. I always thought that Peter would, you know, knowing that guy, he just flies off, says whatever he thinks. I thought that would, and he also didn't question Peter's style or way of doing ministry. Paul went to the heart of the issue because the issue was an issue of the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was getting ready to, to come here. I checked out your church website and I, I love that on your beliefs page, you should go check this out. It has three statements. And these aren't original to GBC, but I think they're just such sound wisdom. They say this, in the essentials, essential beliefs, we have unity. We are united about the authority of scripture, about the things that are in our statement of faith, about what salvation is, about who Jesus is, about who God is. But in the non-essentials, your website says, in non-essential beliefs, we have freedom in the ways that the Spirit convicts us, the ways that we might choose to raise our kids or where to live or where to work or all these other things that are they're part of how we live out in light of the gospel, but they are not the gospel. And in our beliefs, in all of our beliefs, we show love. Paul was not confronting Peter directly or publicly because of a matter of preference or personal priority. In fact, we know from Scripture that they had different preferences and different priorities. Ultimately, Paul would be the apostle to the, to the Gentiles, and Peter would serve mostly among the Jewish people. Paul was also not confronting Peter because of non-essential beliefs or matters of personal corporate conviction. Here's an example of this. Did you know that Paul actually is not 100% against anybody who comes to know Jesus becoming circumcised? We know this is true because when we see later on in Acts, when Timothy becomes a person of faith, Scripture records that Timothy was taken by Paul to be circumcised. Why the inconsistency? Because Paul was not worried about, there are times when that conviction might fall and it might be useful for the advancement of the gospel. But what Paul was crystal clear about was that we cannot add anything to the gospel. We cannot add anything to the gospel. And that leads us to our last thing where Paul lays out justification by faith. I want to read these verses. I want you to think about a couple of weeks ago when we opened this series, Pastor Gary used the example of this, the secret service, how they study the real thing so they know a counterfeit. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. He wants to show us the real thing. He says this, we ourselves are Jews by birth, verse 15, and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tear down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through, the, for though, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live 
by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ would have died for no purpose. This is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's actually one of the preeminent texts that Paul writes on this idea, this doctrine of justification by faith, which is so essential. It is the gospel. One of the most straightforward descriptions that we see in all of the New Testament. Let's look at a couple things as we wind down that Paul says, do not justify us before God. If justification is by faith in Christ, what does not justify us? He knows this, our heritage, our social status, or our family history. Friends, this is good news for you and me. Your resume and your to-do list, your family history, and how many generations of your family were or were not part of the church, that does not justify you before Christ. It's not an issue of social status, religious tradition, race, or anything of the kind. The other thing that does not justify you is keeping the law, doing the right things. That does not justify you before God. The only thing that justifies you before a holy God is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone. It is the only way. J.I. Packer describes justification, an important word in scripture. He describes it this way. Listen to this. To justify in the Bible means to declare of a man on trial that he is not liable to any penalty, but is entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation, that of acquittal and legal immunity. Friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have set your faith in him, then he looks at you and he does not see your filthy rags. He does not see your sin. He does not see your failure. He does not see all of your struggles. What he sees before God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. And he does not just let you get off on a technicality. The Justification by faith, what it means, there is no community service. There is no probation. There is no payment back. You will never be able to pay it back. You are considered absolutely acquitted. There are no penalties and you have all of the privileges. Not just access to God someday when you die, but access to the throne room of God today and now. Because friends, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Think about that in the light of a verse that many of us know best from this passage, Galatians 2.20. Think about these words. Think about how this impacts the way we live. What does gospel living look like in light of this gospel reality? Paul says it this way after contending for the gospel, after fighting for the gospel, he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this picture 
We're reminded through Peter, God, that we can fail. It is not a trap just for the early church. It's a trap for us today, not just for Togo, but for us today. God, help us guard our hearts, guard our minds, make sure that we do not add anything to your gospel. God, help us to be people who handle conflict in healthy ways in our marriages, in our homes, but especially within the life of the church. And God, we thank you for the gift of justification by faith alone. God, if there's anyone here today who is coming to church and they're, they're feeling that they're not good enough, God, may you first commend that they're right, but the righteousness of Jesus is freely available to them because of the death of Christ on the cross and because of the resurrection. And God, it is not our resume. It is not our to-do list. We don't have to get good enough. We don't have to wash ourselves clean. We can never wash ourselves clean, but we are justified alone and get to live in a different way because of what you have done. The gospel changes everything. And God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who's not responded to that truth, God, that they would seek someone out today and have a conversation. Thank you for this gift of life. May we live as crucified with Christ, living by the Spirit. It's in your great and matchless name, the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.